Hello and welcome to PW's LifeCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with the authors of nonfiction and lifestyle books. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Tobias Churton, whose book, Alistair Crowley, The Beast in Berlin, is published by Inner Traditions, the sponsor of today's podcast. Tobias, thanks so much for joining us. A great pleasure. So the subtitle of your book is Art, Sex, and Magic in Weimar, Germany. How do those three elements all go together? Art, sex, and magic. The unity between them is the main character of the book, Alistair Crowley, who's being presented in this book primarily as an artist, an artist that I've rediscovered, as it were. Sex was the electricity which flowed through Berlin in that period. It was the most sexually liberated city on earth at that time. And magic was Crowley's stock in trade. And the combination of art, sex, and magic together gives the book its power and its force. Now, I had no idea that Aleister Crowley was a painter. Obviously, I'm familiar with him as as a mystic, a magician. But what led you to explore his place in the art world of 1930s Berlin, where you say that art was the repository of the soul? Yes, indeed. Uh, That's the wonderful connection. In those days, art uh, was seen as as part part of a spiritual dimension of life. And in fact, the only, as it were, honest purveyor of a spiritual dimension insofar as there wasn't a church backing it. Crowley came to me as an artist because an Australian art dealer called Robert Birati contacted me about three, three or four years ago and he was doing a travelling exhibition of some of Crowley's paintings which had been rediscovered in Sicily and uh, that uh, was going round Australia and he produced a book to go with it called The Nightmare Paintings and I wrote a section on it on Crowley's development as an artist in Berlin. And I was so absolutely bowled over by what I discovered about Crowley's art and his life in Berlin that, that the book grew out of it uh, almost immediately. And um, only to find that, in fact, I'd actually had the, the idea of doing a book on, on Crowley in Berlin, but not as an artist, but in Berlin, uh, many, many years ago when I was a young man in, in living in Berlin myself. And it all sort of ca- it came together it was a great rocket of energy. So you say that there was a magnetism drawing Crowley to Berlin. What made it such a suitable place for him at that time? Crowley's ethic, which is called the Thelema, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, being its famous watchword, too often uh, expresses do as thou wilt or do what you like, uh, somehow fitted in to a growing atmosphere of liberty and exploration that Berlin was harboring before the Nazis moved in. And so because it had intellectual rigor, plus artistic flair, plus energy, although very little money at the time because of the Depression, Crowley fitted right in. Berliners recognized immediately that he was a highly unusual character, not at all a typical Englishman, who walked the walk and talked the talk. And they understood him as an artist in Berlin in a way that he wasn't understood that way in his home country in England. And he'd had trouble, uh, even though his first ever art review was in Syracuse, uh, near New York, of course. And uh, the Americans were the first people to to be the viewers of Crowley's art. But because he he was associated with the critique of Christianity, Crowley got into, into trouble in New York in 1919 with his first exhibition. Now, there was no such problems of that kind in Berlin who were prepared to uh, open themselves uh, to thoroughly 
revolutionary and spiritually revolutionary ideas. Crowley was made for Berlin. Berlin was made for him. The foreword by Frank Van Lamon refers to Crowley as a Salvador Dali of occultism, which I thought was a wonderful phrase. Can you expand on that a little bit, on, on his connections perhaps with some surrealist aspects? Crowley's idea of reality was that what we perceive is a result of the state of our unconscious. So in that sense, that he understood that magically and felt that Freud had got there uh, as it were, intellectually or within a, with a sort of scientific hat on. But his, Crowley's feeling was that magic had understood this forever, really, because magic had always been interested in dreams. Look at the Bible. It's always about somebody, t- you know, the, somebody's having a dream and a dream is being interpreted, whether it's by Daniel or whatever. So Crowley's knowledge of occultism, his profound experience of it, gave him to understand that the unconscious was a place you could really explore. And he called poetry the geezer of the unconscious. And I think he applied that idea to to visual arts as well. And when he finally realized that uh, visual art was also a language, he'd been a great literary figure. He'd, he'd, He'd written a lot of poetry, wrote an exceptional prose writer. And he discovered art. And art came for him, the geezer of the unconscious. When people think of Dali, they probably don't think automatically of Freud. But, of course, Freud is there in Dali's thinking. Now, Crowley could have been a Freud had he been of that bent, as it were. So there, there is this surrealist idea that he's, got, he's poking through the visual, the automatic visual world mm-hmm. to the motivating uh, spiritual powers behind it. Now, whereas Freud would have said these these powers are just aspects of the attic unconscious, with Crowley, they are spiritual and living powers. For our listeners, can you describe Crowley's art a little bit? I know it's always difficult to put a painting into words, but just to give a sense of, of what sort of school of art and what they might expect when they pick up your book and see those really fascinating color plates. It's very hard to uh, put Crowley in any kind of artistic community and say he was a surrealist or he was an expressionist he was very inspired by Gauguin and I think visually if you look at a a Crowley painting and they're very diverse his paintings those that have survived uh, Gauguin springs to mind immediately but also Chagall He, he said that a painting should express the true will of the artist and the artist arranges his figures and his colors in accordance with an idea of his soul that he wants to get out so in that, they, his, his paintings are very colourful. They always have humour in them, a lot of humour. And his portraits are portraits, but they're portraits as he wanted uh, people to be seen. He didn't impose any, art, any superficial style on his work. He didn't try to paint like a cubist, try to paint like a futurist, try to paint like a vorticist or a surrealist. He painted as Alistair Crowley. His works are, are, are unmistakable when you see one. And some of them are miracles of imagination. Some of them you feel, well, he's, he's, you know, there's a lot, there's a great variation in quality. But the finest paintings came to the attention of Karl Nierendorf and Alpha von Alphensleben, two of the biggest promoters in Berlin. And they said, this man paints like no other Englishman. And he belongs here and people must see him and judge for themselves. So what, what was the reception like, the, both the sort of formal critical reception and um, also how people reacted to Crowley as a person? 
Well, there's, there are two big questions. Um, we don't have, I have not been able to trace any of the reviews of the exhibition which took place in, in October, November 1931, uh, which is not at all surprising because of the, the, the nature of what happened very shortly afterwards politically and, and the loss of a great deal of Berlin documentation. But we have the record of people who visited Berlin and went to see the exhibition, such as Gerald York, who was an English landowner and uh, Cambridge intellectual. And he said the painting shocked and surprised Berliners, uh, but they had no money to buy his paintings. So he'd been working at this uh, exhibition for two years and uh, it, it, it coincided with one of, the, one of the worst financial crises in German, Germany's history ever. And everybody was living on a shoestring. And even the promoter had retired to bed for two months uh, through anxiety-related illnesses because he couldn't pay uh, to keep his, his, his gallery running properly. So he couldn't have chosen a worse moment to, to exhibit. We can only go on the fact that he was supported by major players and, uh, in, in, in the world of Berlin. As for Crowley's reputation and reception in Berlin, he, w he was much appreciated by the artistic community who recognised um, uh, this wonderful combination of, sort of guru uh, who was unpretentious and uh, easy, to, easy to get along with and uh, at the same time uh, able to recognise what Germany was contributing to art in that period before the great awful crackdowns took place. And you base a lot of this work, uh, the research on Crowley's own words, um, you have quotes from his letters and uh, journal entries. What other research did you do for this volume? Well, there's quite enough in, in the written record itself, the surviving letters, 90%, uh, uh, no more than that. Nearly everything in the book has never been published before. The letters of, of Crowley to Karl Germer, his assistant in Berlin, and to various other people have never been revealed. It's all new stuff. Um, in, in other aspects of research, where, well, I I, it's hard to know. I, I looked into the cinema of the period and the connections between Crowley and the German film industry. Um, I looked into the, obviously into the politics and I, I based uh, my perceptions of Berlin on the fact that I lived there during the 1980s and on also on tracing as many of the paintings as I possibly could. And I met a lovely man in, 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 in southern England who'd, who'd bought some of Crowley's works, which are revealed in the, in the book for the first time. And what else can I say? I, I, went, I, I went to the ends of the earth to find whatever I could to bring, it, bring forth into the book. You've also written a biography of Crowley. Uh, do you see this as a sort of companion volume, as a as a sequel, or uh, more as a zooming in on that particular time period? The Alistair Crowley biography is a portrait of Crowley throughout his life, and like every portrait, is not a total uh, revelation of the entire man. Now, Crowley's life, I found, was rather like Winston Churchill's, and I think the official biography of Churchill ran to seven or eight volumes. Uh, depending on which which edition you get, you could equally write a ten, twelve volume biography of Crowley. There are a lot of unexplored uh, aspects of Crowley's extraordinary life. Uh, so, in that sense, it, it, it's a volume of a missing, extensive biography of Crowley, if you like. But in a way, I, I think this book's just a sort of special satellite of its own. It, it stands by itself. It doesn't need to be read in companion with the biography. We meet Crowley at a point in his life as we would a character in a novel, and we follow him deeply through three uh, years 
And we, we're with him on the streets. We're seeing everything he saw and we're experiencing what he saw and the incredible characters, amazingly famous people, now famous, that for him were just regular cafe customers, Christopher Isherwood, Aldous Huxley, Gerald Hamilton, Gene Ross, who became the Sally Bowles of the cabaret movie um, in, the, in the imagination of Christopher Isherwood, Alfred Flecktime, the great Jewish uh, art collector and promoter, Stephen Spender, the poet, Marcel Schiffer, Margot Lyon, um, Albert Einstein, Schrodinger. I mean, he was, he was with everyone and everywhere. This, what I've done is I've raised the Titanic of, of early 30s Berlin. You can see it coming out of the water, and, you, and one is just agog, amazed at what was happening in Berlin in 30 to 31 to 30, early 32, just before, as I say, the terrible shutdown happened when, the, as it were, the world went mad and uh, the Nazis gained control of Germany in, in 33. So it's, it's like a world that could have been. And I also trace that through to the current day. And you see that, in fact, that Berlin emerged in post-war uh, Europe and America in the architecture, the art, the attitudes, so much that we think is most modern and post-war was there in Berlin in that, in, that, in that last period. And Crowley somehow crystallizes all that in, in, as, as a vision of possible change, a possible future. It didn't happen in 31. Of course, we feel it should have been. And it hasn't quite happened now. It's, it's come over in dribs and drabs, as it were. So who do you see as the audience for this particular book? Is it for people who are interested in Crowley as a person? Is it for students of history? Who, who would this appeal to? This book is obviously uh, going to appeal to people who know anything about Crowley already, but most of all, I think it's for people who are interested in the future, because Berlin at that time was a city of the future with a promise of the future, and Crowley had a message for the future. So I think for people who are looking for light in, in our darkness and a way forward out of the post-60s miasma, which seems to go on forever, the, you know, perpetual retroism, which we live with, uh, I feel that I found something which gives us a, 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 a big step and uh, an optimistic, if difficult, step into, into our collective future. I've been speaking with Tobias Churton. He's the author of Alistair Crowley, The Beast in Berlin. Thank you so much for listening and join us for the next LifeCast. Cast. 